Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Hi everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of the Shaharul Night Live. It's a beautiful, beautiful Sunday for most of us, I believe so. <laughs> It is for me. So Inshallah. that's why I'm so, so excited. <laughs> And uh, the topic today we are going to be discussing is about Sharia law, jihad, and apostasy in Islam. So, very controversial stuff here. We got, I think, we picked some years now <laughs> who are really interested to know about this topic. So, without much further ado, okay, we have here on the panel Iskandar, all the way from the Netherlands. And right below him is Ustad Saifur Rahman. He's from Singapore. And below him is Noor Sarah. And she's from the United States of America, but she's now here with us in Singapore. So, Welcome. <laughs> I mean that she's been here for a long time really. So actually, it's not welcome anymore. <laughs> you are very hyper today, yeah. Uh? Yeah, a bit. Uh, I think too much uh, Red Bull, maybe or bubble tea. Okay. So uh, now we shall ask this very important question, controversial question, maybe. Uh, what is Sharia law? We heard about it on the media. We've seen it everywhere, and so now I'll bring in Ustaz Saifur Rahman to share us what. Is Sharia law. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, hi everyone. I hope you had a good uh, weekend. So, with regards to the question, what is Sharia law? When someone hears the word Sharia law, most associated with the amputation of limbs, stoning for adultery, uh, lashing or caning for some other offenses, and because of this mindset, Sharia law has become synonymous with a draconian and inhumane Islamic legal system, especially in the West. It is portrayed as an archaic and unfair social justice system. But the question is, what really is Sharia and why the massive opposition, especially to the many who don't even understand it? Okay, so uh, let's start from the linguistic part of it. From the linguistic angle, Sharia can be understood as God's will for humankind. It means the way and does not refer to a body of law as is commonly understood. So when we say the way, what way are we referring to? Specifically, it is understood as the way to the source of water. And in an arid desert condition in which this faith was born, it is technically understood to be the way to survive. Right. So technically, Sharia is the way in which Allah's will is manifest to guide humankind to survive in the best way possible in this temporary life. So broadly speaking, as a way, Sharia refers to a wide-ranging moral and ethical principles that guides humankind to live and realize his or her full potential on this earth. It is not confined purely to religious matters, but covers every aspect of a Muslim life. Sharia explains how Allah wants men to be in this world and has the universal application to all people. Sharia is ultimately based on the authority of God's revelation and its legitimacy stems from that divine origin. And we want to distinguish between Sharia and Islamic law. There is a slight difference. Right? The principles of Sharia is drawn from the Quran and the examples of the Prophet of that particular generation. And in our generation, in our case, it is collectively known as the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This broad principle are interpreted by juries to come up with specific legal rulings and moral prescriptions. This body of legal rulings known as fiqh, or in other words, is called as Islamic law, is a scholar's effort or attempt in trying to understand Allah's divine will. As fiqh, or Islamic law, is the result of human interpretation, it is recognized as being fallible and changeable, subject to improvements and upgrade as living contexts and conditions change. So for example, I'll give you uh, two, two examples. One is fasting. Uh, the sharia is to fast as a means of purification and discipline 
but the fiqh of it has changed over t- over time. For example, in the time of Nabi Isa salam, he fasted for 40 days. Nabi Musa also fasted for 40 days. But for us in this generation of Umar of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, we fast for 30 days in one month cycle, right? So that's the easy part. Then there's another part that might come as a shock to you with regards to repentance. How do you how do you repent? Uh, I think we spoke about this in episode two or three. How do you repent? To the three R's. The three R's, excellent. And then we perform sunat salat sunat tawbah, sayyidul istighfar, you know, and so on and so forth, right? So yeah. in its essence, it's really a quite simple thing to do. Uh, the sharia of it is to seek for forgiveness for the sins that we have committed. The fiqh, however, changes over time as well. And let me tell you that during the time of Nabi Musa salam, after he has saved the Bani Israel, and after they crossed the Red Sea, they saw the parting of the Red Sea. And then, you know, when Nabi Musa went up to speak to God, uh, it took him about 40 days or so. And by the time he came back, they saw them worshipping the golden calf. If you're familiar with that story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So, um, and then when he came down, he was really angry with them uh, because after all the things that they've been through, you know, they were the miracle that went through the Red Sea and, and all that and they saw the miracle for themselves. Immediately after they reached the shore and were saved, they they made an idol and they worship it, right? Yeah, Al-Baqarah, right? That's, that's essentially the theme of the second chapter in the Quran. So, how do you think their sharia of that time, how was their repentance? Is it still the same three hours and then salat, sunat, tawbah, salut, isifah? Was it that or something else? I think worse. I think worse. And yeah, I, I'll I tell you that it is worse because Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 52, He says, Which means, so repent your creator by killing yourself. So the way of repentance during that time, particularly because they've gone through so much and yet despite all of that, they, you know, they, they were safe and they went through all those major incidents in life. They still worship someone else apart from God. So Allah says to repent, you need to kill yourself. And the fiqh of it now is slightly different. We don't have to do that, mashallah. All we need to do is just seek sincere repentance from Allah. Tawbatan nasuha. We spoke about it about two sessions ago. And then we pray, we do sadu istighfar, we, we, we do whatever it is that we need to do and it's not through killing ourselves so the method of it is slightly different but okay, the sharia uh, is still the same what's that sorry yeah. to interrupt you sister Risi have a question for you okay sister what is it um it's, it's about the question of like repentance i guess yeah, yeah. um you know there's a saying i'm not sure who said this but there's a saying in islam that goes mm-hmm. along the lines of you know even if we stopped sinning like we as like an ummah we as like a population humanity stop sinning completely um mm-hmm. allah would replace us with a population who does sin and then repents instead so he prefers people that like sins and repents over people who are just perfect naturally um but does this mean um does this mean that like allah prefers people who continuously like likes to sin or in that sense like doesn't he have like a limit to how much we should sin or how much we should continue that okay good so number one we we will say that uh in your perspective when we understand this verse of the quran or, or the hadith we say that we say that Allah prefers someone who sins as opposed to those who don't sin. Actually, the, the, the sentence does not end there. Allah prefers someone who sins and then continuously seeks for forgiveness. Okay, that's number one. Because not that Allah likes us to sin, but because it's you know nature, our imperfect characteristics that so much so that we will naturally sin in one way or another on a regular basis. But the message through those verses and through the hadith is to say that no matter what, no matter how much you sin, no matter how regular it is, always come back. Always come back to me. Always come back to Allah, seek repentance, seek forgiveness, purify yourself, 
get close to me again, right? So, so, so that's the first point. The second point, the way we understand in our perspective is not because Allah loves to see us sinning and and to prove that we are imperfect that and this and He's more perfect. It's not that. It's just that it's in our nature to always be inclined towards sin. And so, whether we plan or we don't plan, sometimes by our attitude, by our speech, by our you know actions, we commit something that is not pleasurable to Allah. And so, the whole idea of that statement is really that we keep coming back to him and that's the repentance of it and is there a limit in your question of how much Allah wants to forgive you as long as the sin that we commit is not one that ascribe or associate something other than him then he is always willing to forgive and put it back to zero square square level right and he says in in several hadith and we spoke about this in the last few episodes that even if you, you come to me with your sins as much as the earth and the heavens I will forgive them even if your sins were as much as the foams in the ocean right as the foams in the ocean I will still forgive them there is no limit to my ability to forgive because he's, he's Al-Ghafur he's the most forgiving one okay the only thing that he doesn't forgive is shirk right so whatever we do we must always try our best not to commit that because there's an unforgivable sin number two although allah is the most forgiving it does not mean it gives us a license to be heedless and to commit whatever we want to do because we know that in the, at the end of the day allah will forgive the point is we do not know whether we have the time to ask allah's forgiveness for the sin that we've committed purposely because we do not know when we're going to die. We are definitely going to go. Right? We will definitely meet the end but the the magic thing is we do not know when that end will be. It might be tonight, maybe halfway through this session and we plan to seek repentance tomorrow maybe or next week. You know, So the whole idea is to always come back, come back, come back, purify every day if you need to. Even if you think that you're not sincere and you think that you know, I like this and I'm going to do this, but never mind for what I've done, I'm going to ask for forgiveness for, to this point. Even if it's to that level, the concept is still go back and still ask for the repentance. Does that sort of answer the question? Yep. Okay, alhamdulillah. Yes, and it answers the question. But I also have a follow-up question and okay. I'm going to ask that right now. Yes. Okay, so my follow-up question is like, so you say like, you know, one of the most un- like. If you, if you do shirk, uh, you know, you're basically like, what are you doing? You're basically cheating on God. Can't do that. But what if people do shirk by accident? Like in their conscious mind, someone may think, yeah, I'm Muslim. I believe in Allah. But also in their day-to-day lives, they worship, let's say, like work more than Allah. Like, you know, they don't pray. They skip prayers. They, you know, they were kind of like workaholic and like always like, you know, doing their job, you know, trying to like be like financially stable just because like somewhere in their heart, they feel like um the need to actually secure that like kind of like safety yeah. from like financial and stuff like that so yeah. for, for them in a way would you consider that they almost value like financial stability just as like yeah. you know the people like worship the golden calf would you say they're committing okay. shirk or would you say this is something just like a bad habit is that possible okay. to make accidental shirk okay Rishi, in, an interesting example you gave but you know in reality in life what you just said about someone giving up on god and to concentrate on his career or you know build wealth this is a common occurrence that that occurs on a daily basis across the board, right? So uh, to say that is an act of shirik, I mean, in a theoretical sense, if you if you precede something else more than God, then that would be an extent of, of shirik. But when we talk about shirik in this context, we're talking about consciously putting someone else in the same level of power, of control over you other than God. 
right? Uh, if you were to consider that example as shirik, well, it, it may be, but then you can see the implications. Almost like more than half of the Muslim population are committing that kind of shirik. And in, in an essence, that's something that is actually, you know, really not supposed to be done anyway, right? But, but you know, the demands of life requires it to be so. So the shirik that we refer to is really something that is more direct, uh, something that um, clearly uh, puts something else in, instead of God. Does yep. that uh, sort of clarify it? Yep. So it's more specific. Yeah, it's, it's more specific. Of course, these things, you know, when let's say there is like the call to Azan and then you're watching soccer or football and then and then on Netflix and you say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pray after this. I mean, in, in those in those degree, yes, there is an element of minor shirik that's involved because you you put maybe your football match in priority over the calling of Allah to you, to Him, right? So um, if that is the case, then we're all kind of doomed, right? But remember, Islam is a message of hope and so we are quite specific when we talk about this element of shirik in this context. I wanted to ask a question about the uh, the forgiving of uh, Allah. Okay. And because you mentioned that uh, as long as it's not shirik, he will forgive us. And uh, so so I was wondering, because humans work by different laws than, than Allah, I think. Mm-hmm. So when, for example, someone steals from me, am I mm-hmm. obliged to, to punish him? Or is it better for me to forgive him? Or rather, am I even allowed to punish him? Uh, and where does the legitimacy of that kind of law come from, right? What are the sources of any laws I can apply? Okay. So in the broad view of talking about Sharia law today, uh, I will answer that first and then I'll go to your specific question. And if I forgot, please remind me later. Okay, so we talk about Sharia for the last five, ten minutes. And so we want to ask what are the sources of this Sharia law? And the basic source of Sharia law are two, very important. Uh, and this must be the basis of everything that we do. Number one is from the Quran and number two is the Sunnah of the Prophet Wasallam. So as easy as it may sound, it is not as easy in its understanding or application, right? Because the Quran in unraveling the meaning of God's words are subjected to various sciences of interpretations and this is a big topic on itself. I mean, now in the market when you look for English translation of the Quran, you can find at the top of my head, I can give you six different tafsirs. So everyone has a different understanding of what these words means to them, right? So other tools such as the science of the asbab or the reason for revelation, why did Allah reveal this verse, for example, or other supporting hadith to explain the applicability of any particular verse requires specialization to master and it is not just like opening the Quran and quoting one translated verse and then that becomes voila, the, the one and be all uh, understanding to it. Okay, so that's that's one thing, the Quran. So we have people who studies this and, you know, it's not people like you and me who just open the book and, and, and suddenly claim to understand what it means. Okay, you need to study this with people who actually take years to study the language, the, the arrangement, the, the asbab, and so on and so forth. And then we have the sunnah. And we always throw around these words and we say, you know, we must follow the sunnah of the prophet, sunnah of the prophet, sunnah of the prophet. So what constitutes the sunnah? And there are three basic sources to this. Number one is his speech, what he says. For example, he says, pray as you see me pray. And then his actions. And then you saw how he prays and you follow, that's how he prays. And then the third one, which is always almost forgotten, is his silent affirmations. That means something that he doesn't say or doesn't do, but he acquires by keeping quiet. For example, one day he came back and he saw Sayyidatina Aisha, who was young, very young, playing with dolls, naturally, right? And some hardcore amongst us will say that, you know, you should not have dolls, you throw it away. The Muslims should not be playing with dolls. But the Prophet in this situation saw her 
playing with doll and taking into account her age and her happiness while she was playing with it, sat down, smiled at her, and then move on to continue to do whatever he does. So there was no there was no action to say this is not permissible or he didn't say that it's not permissible. He just quietly affirms it. So all these three components constitutes what we call the sunnah. Okay, the speech will be what we call the hadith. Okay, so on top of this, the sunnah cannot be understood and this is something that is dangerous. I see a lot of it on social media. You cannot just understand the sunnah by quoting one or two hadith on a certain topic and come to a certain position. A gamut of various hadith on the same topic needs to be understood, peeling away various contexts of how that hadith was being uh, implemented or, or, or came about. And that in itself is a science, right? And I think uh, it's one of the earlier signs that human studies as a discipline in, in the history of mankind. So, so don't just Google certain hadith and say, ah, this is, this is it. There's, there's no other possibility. Uh, that's, that's not quite true. So, mm. so apart from these two, if the answer cannot be found, then there are other principles which Muslim scholars use to work out how God wants Muslims to live. Number one, on top of Quran and Hadith, is the tool of what we call the ijma. Ijma, uh, the consensus of the scholars on any particular issue. In the in the past, it's easy because they're all residing in Mecca, in Medina. They, if they have an issue, they just call each other, and then the shura will decide. And so, so it's easy now. How you know the question is how do you find an ijma when you're all all over the world, you know? But then there is a there's something that could mitigate it. We have technology and we can all come together. So maybe, you know, it's something easy but not so easy to actually determine. Number two, we have what we call the qiyas. Qiyas is to arrive at a conclusion because it's not contained directly in the Quran and the Hadith but by deductive analogy of somewhat similar examples which scholars employ to arrive at a solution. Okay, so this take another form of this discipline itself. And the third will be a slightly different paradigm which is what we call the ishtihad. And this is not based on a group of opinions but it's based on a personal, independent reasoning of different scholars on any issue presented. Not everyone can can be a mujtahid, someone who can. You and I, none of us can do it. You know, n- number one, we have not memorized the Quran. We do not know the, the the meaning of the Quran. We only Google hadith. We don't even memorize the hadith. And you know, we talk about hadith. We are talking about the narrators, the chain, and all that. These are the people that are so well versed in it. You know, and they their lives are just committed to to worship, that they are close to God and therefore those are the ones that can qualify to perform ishtihad. Not any, not anyone with a BA degree or even a master's or PhD degree can do that. Okay, So the steps and weight and priority of these sources depends on the various schools of thought. And so now I'm bringing up another, another thing which I think Rizzi mentioned in the very first episode, the madhab <clears throat> that the scholars subscribe. So it is a bit complicating. So for example, due to historical, geographical and applicability factors, the followers of the Maliki madhab puts priority on the practices of the people of Medina because the Prophet lived in Medina and sort of sanctioned the actions of the Prophet and it becomes their culture and they practice it. So what the people of Medina do becomes a source of law in the way that they want to interpret a particular situation. The Shafi'i Madhab, you know, the, the, the people of the Shafi'i usually lives in coastal areas away from the Hijaz area. So, you know, they don't have the benefit. So the the component of the Amal or the practices of the people of the Medina uh, people uh, are not one of the factors that we consider. So, the Maliki, when they want to come to a, to a fatwa, they will go through this process. First, they ask, is it in the Quran? Is it in the Sunnah? If it's not, is it in the practices of the Madinites? Then, is it is there an ijma on it? Is there, what is the opinion of the Sahaba on it? And what is the Qiyas? Right? So, this is kind of a, the steps that it took, they take. And whereas a Shafi'i scholar would go through another, with another process, priority. First, the Quran and Sunnah always is the same. Then, they go to ijma first. Right? There's no such thing as the opinions of the Madinite practices because we don't live in Madinite. Uh, the opinions of the Sahaba Qiyas is Tishab. 
uh, is this hub that uh, will all you know will fall into priority of how to decide whether certain things is permissible or not. So so it is easy, but it it also gets complicating. So what I'm trying to impress you is this: that although the sources of law may seem generally simple, com- the component of each requires an in-depth discipline and study to extract the meaning of God. So just because you hold a particular view and this is important of a certain issue, for example, it may not be the same for another. Muslims should not be divided based on superficial knowledge of a certain ruling without knowing how they have been derived. Okay, so I, I hope that sort of answered the question. So is there anything else to your question? Yeah, the other question was, um, well, it was more specific, but it was an, an example to segue into this question. So I don't think it needs to be answered as such. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Thank you. Okay. All right, thanks. So okay. what's the next question you have? So <coughs> when you talk to Muslims, they make mm. it sound as if Shara is something very cast in stone. Mm. Is there room for change or diversity within Islam? Excellent question. So so as you see, uh, in order to extrapolate the meaning of God in understanding the Quran itself requires many, many skills that you, you and I at this point don't have. And then the Hadith, and then the Ijma, Qiyas, and then Istishab, and you know, and then Ishtihad, and, and so on and so forth. So precisely, since the basis of the law is subject to those interpretations, the spirit of Islamic law incorporates diversity uh, and differences of opinion as well, within limits, of course. So we ask ourselves, what are those limits? Uh, number one, I think any discussion must be based on deep understanding of the spirit of the law, rather than just a superficial glance reading of the law that anyone who doesn't go to school or training can do. So there must be in-depth research on the topic. Number two, how one derives and conclude on any single issue must be based by the sciences and the steps as provided by, by fiqh. So let's like say if you are Maliki, these are your steps. If you are Shafi'i, these are your steps. Hanbali, Hanafi, Ja'afari and so on and so forth. Number three, if after going through the proper steps in applying any particular issue and the outcome is different, maybe perhaps due to different schools of thought of, of interpretation. So Embrace each other and don't force one another to accept your your position because they have gone through the system, they have gone through the steps, and this is the the answer because the steps are slightly different, but it's accepted by the common Muslim scholarship that these are the steps that needs to be they need to filter the questions through, right? So sometimes differences in answer, but as long as the steps have been adhered to strictly, then there's no need for you to say I'm right and you're wrong, and then fight over it. Okay, this is the beauty of Islam. The diversity is meant to bring us together, make it easy for us living in different parts of the world with different conditions uh, rather than meant to divide us which is what is happening now Mm. yeah so that's why it's, it's a great question. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you for answering the question. Okay. Any other question anyone have? Maybe before I go on to the next question, actually. Okay. No one. Okay. Next question is, why mm-hmm. is Sharia important for Muslims? Okay. So uh, there are many ways to answer this question. Uh, interesting. But I would, I just want to focus on, on facts and on contents rather than, you know, a philosophical way of looking at things because that can bring us to another topic, right? So while we can argue about the importance of Sharia, Muslims must be be aware of the significance of it and what's the purpose of Sharia. So the Sharia aims to protect the basic human rights of all members of the community irrespective of race. And I think this, if I'm not mistaken now that I'm I'm recalling, this was one of the questions that uh, Iskandar was alluding to earlier. Yeah, so to that aim, we must know what is the purpose or in Arabic, we call it the maqasid of Sharia. And we can summarize it simply and there are many, many ways to look at it and there are many subsets to it. But we can summarize it in five basic things. It is in the preservation and the protection of number one life right so believe it or not 
because you don't see it sometimes that the purpose that Allah has the Sharia or Islamic law is in order to protect and to preserve life. So if there's anyone who tells you do this so that you can take away these lives and take away your own life, for example, uh, suicide, bombing, for example, that sort of situation. The question is, does it comply with the purpose of Sharia? And obviously, it fails on the first instance. It fails to preserve and protect life. And so you know for a fact immediately in your mind that this is not Sharia, neither is this Islamic law. This is political Islam, mm. right? The second thing would be to protect and preserve faith, right? You you must do whatever you need to do and that's why the whole the whole journey in Islam is about you discovering your own faith. But you also cannot force someone to enter the faith. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about apostasy, right? Uh, to, 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 prom- to preserve and protect the intellect, uh, number three. Number four, to preserve and protect your progeny. Your progeny would be your generations, your children, your children's children and so on and so forth. And that's why we have a basic understanding that you cannot fornicate, you cannot have sex prior to marriage because if that happened, then it affects the whole of your progeny, right? And then the fifth one and the final one is to pre- to preserve and to protect your wealth. So you find that Islam, the the, the Sharia, the purpose is encapsulate encapsulates both spiritual dimension and also worldly dimension. And so in the in the preservation and protection of wealth, that's why we have a, a series of laws that talks about inheritance, the Baitul Mal, and so on and so forth. And and it actually is very very specific in Quran, if not one of the most specific verses in the Quran in the Quran, right? So so these are the reason why Sharia is important. So if anyone directs you to perform anything in contradiction to any of these five, then no matter who he is, it is not Sharia or Islamic law. So Sharia also aims to establish justice between Muslims and the rest of humanity through the establishment and protection of all of this and to provide benefits or maslaha for us by removing hardships from the demands of life. And so uh, then uh, the rulings will come through the Islamic fiqh that the scholars would then interpolate, right? So that's that's why Sharia is important for, for humankind, for Muslims. Yeah, that's that's the answer to the question. <clears throat> um, i got a few more questions, but first, just want to summarize a bit um, hmm. on the part. Um, are you saying that, you know, the Sharia is meant to protect humanity in essence, as in mm. all aspects of humanity from their wealth, from their family, protecting the family unit, you know, to... Yeah, the intellect, the, faith, the intellect, life, faith. Yeah. yeah, the five okay. components, yeah. Then yeah. the so, next question I have <clears throat> yeah. uh, is a follow-up question on the part where you said um, having right. fornication, which is not allowed. Yeah. Um, because I, I, I read some parts also in the Quran about you know the right hand possesses yeah uh, thing so yeah. what what the, how does that come into play like it's in, okay. is it a context thing yeah probably the context so right? by and large let us clarify this concept so in the Quran mm-hmm. Allah talks about you, uh, legitimacy of your wife marrying your wife uh, your wife and also there's another aspect in which Allah talks about our malakat aymanuhum what your right hands possess right uh, so generally let us clarify that this concept doesn't apply to us in this con- in these times uh, so for example if you know that all in all the prophet roughly uh, he married how many how many wives does he have eight, from from Khadija no more than eight okay I think but at any one point not more than four right but all in all he he's married to about 11 of them right and then there are one or two of them who were his wives but not married and this were what we call uh, what your hands possess so this could be in the form of their slaves in which he owns them um, so an example would be Maria Al-Qurtubi right? Maria the Coptic right so she is one of those in that category uh, but you and I don't don't have this benefit okay so don't go around marrying your your domestic helper is is that's not the situation the situation here <laughs> so let me just clarify okay? okay she is not what your right hand possesses. 
dispossess. Okay, unlike in the past where they were actually concepts of slavery, right? So um so that's the difference between a uh, wife in a traditional sense and what your right hands possess. Yeah. Ah, uh-huh, okay. Just the simple fact is just simply when I don't get this benefit. Okay. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. In case because of uh, time get, and place, people get smart. Time and place and context. Uh, yes, time and place and context. Correct. Okay. So okay, why is uh okay why is Sharia so mm. strict? Or for example, mm. uh, hudud law. Seemingly strict, lah. I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, seemingly strict. Or some yeah. people feel wow, so strict, yeah. you know. Why? So, so do you find? <laughs> let me ask. Most of you are reverts. When before you became a Muslim, was Islam being strict one of those things that scared you? Don't lie. Just say it. Actually, uh, it's, it's like where we put the boundaries, right? Yeah. Uh, like, like if I pull off my clothes and and walk outside, I will be arrested for nudist for being a nudist. So, <laughs> I mean, if if if, yeah. <laughs> if your boundaries are less strict. I yeah. guess if you you place your standards somewhere else, yeah, then it's totally understandable. But it's just the perspective, I think. Yeah. So. yeah. So it's a matter of perspective. You're right, and I think some of the perspectives are formed because uh, people are not well informed, right? So I think what Firdaus is trying to allude the strictness of the Sharia would refer to probably the hudud, maybe Firdaus. Mm-hmm. The hudud, yes. Will you be referring to that? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Let, let's 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 that handle the elephant that is in the room. The hudud. The hudud is an Arabic term that refers to the Islamic penal law or punishment. Mm-hmm. Right. So by that alone, we understand that hudud is merely one component of a body of Islamic law. But of course, due to bad press, you know, it tends to overshadow any attempts of understanding Islamic law generally. Right. So people just say hudud. Oh, you know, you want to be Muslim? Later they chop your hands, they chop your fingers, they chop your everything. Chop, chop, chop. <laughs> you know. So in, in traditional. Islamic legal system, hudud is implemented when certain strict rules and conditions are met. And the hudud laws are not meant to be punitive. Their main intention is deterrence. So one critical point that needs to be appreciated is that it is not easy to apply hudud laws. So in a way, the critics of Islam say, you have this which cannot be implemented. Why do you even have that? Right. So we're going to address this, inshallah, down the line. There are onerous preconditions to be fulfilled before such an act can be carried out. This will ensure that the implementation of such laws does not violate the principles of justice and clemency which are central to the spirit of Islamic law. Right. Mm. So there are four penalties under hudud that are specifically mentioned in the Quran. Number one is theft. Number two, false accusation of fornication. Number three, adultery. And number four, brigandage. Brigandage is referring to the in the past where you have gangs that ambushes and robs people in forests or mountains. Right. So that's the, the concept. So contrary to popular belief, penalties for what you're going to ask me later, apostasy, mm-hmm. right? And drinking alcohol are not found in the Quran. Okay. okay. Many stringent conditions must be met before punishment can be meted out. So I'm going to give you two examples. Number one, theft, where the punishment is amputation of the hand. But mm-hmm. before the court of uh, Hudud can ascertain and, and pass that punishment, he must ascertain that the object of the theft is marked by the owner so that there is no mistake that he didn't, he took it by mistake. That he, with all intents and purposes, uh, intended to to steal. Okay. For example, the, the, the high owners would be, you know, the, the name of the owner must be on that object. So that's the first requirement. It is. It must be put in a well-guarded place that is not like some corner where people can just come in and swipe and go quietly. No. It must be that he really intends to steal it and despite going through all the securities around doing it. And that thing that you steal must have a monetary value. It cannot be something like uh, pilfering, right? S- small, small things like, you know, you go to the 7-Eleven and get it's wrong by law but, you know, you would not go into hudud if you take a chewing gum or 
you know, or whatever, small, small thing or small value. And number four, the thief must not be in a great need of the object. So he's just stealing to deprive you of it, not because he needs it. If he needs it, then it's another, another situation. So mm-hmm. that there will be moral issues, you know, for example, when we look at the story of Les Miserables, right? The guy actually went through 10 years of imprisonment because he stole a loaf of bread because his uh, family was super hungry. His, his purpose was to eat that. In Islam, if that is a reason why you took that thing and there's a, you know, that's justifiable, then it's not hudud law. It's something else, okay? And he must not have quasi-ownership claim to the object, right? Because all this means that he, you know, these are the things that we do nowadays, but in Islam, it must be something that is with so much malice that he purposely wants to steal it. It has value. It is hid. It is not in a well-guarded place, you know, that, you know, he doesn't need it. Okay, so when we look at this requirement, only if these are met, then if there is Islamic law in that country, then hudud is applicable, then hudud law will be used. Okay, so that this also means that most things that we see on a to the basis like pilfering, stealing things of small value, plundering, committing theft in times of war, pickpocketing is too menial, a theft of public goods cannot be classified as theft under hudud law. Okay, so that's one example. And then we talk about uh, the famous example of fornication. Right? Before someone can be subjected to hudud law due to fornication, the court must hear the evidence and accept the evidence of four reliable witnesses. Number one, between you and me, who would be reliable witnesses who would look at what you're doing in the confines of your own bedroom? Right? These people are probably like oh, something wrong in the mind as well, right? <laughs> okay, people okay. look at, take a hole, peep a hole and then see hey, what you do inside this hotel room you know, whatever. So something must be wrong with him. So it must be four reliable witnesses who have seen the crime with their own eyes and it must be from start to finish. It cannot be halfway because it might be misconstrued as something else when it is not. And this is another important thing, eh? that he must be able to swear that their intimacy and physical proximity must be so close that a thread could not have passed between the man and the woman. Like, not only must he see it from beginning to end, he must see it so clearly that the definitely there's there's contact not even a thread could pass through it right uh so this is just a sample of the onerous conditions that are utterly impracticable to fulfill uh, thus rendering the application of hudud punishment nearly impossible furthermore according to the prophet's tradition the application of this hudud punishment should be withheld if doubts exist regarding the facts the witnesses the victims or even the accused Finally, hooded punishment cannot be applied to a criminal who repents after the crime has been committed but before the execution of the punishment. In short, what we can see here is that Muslims are enjoined to show tolerance and clemency. Every time they show mercy and avoid application of hooded punishment, they are acting in the good spirit of Islam. So then we ask ourselves, if this is meant to be a deterrence, how will it then preserve public order and security if hooded punishments are practically impossible to be applied with such tough preconditions? So scholars have argued, and this is something that Muslims need to understand that it is not against Islamic law or doctrine to rely on a system of punishment provided for under the civil system as long as they dispense justice and reaffirm the values and principles which are held dear by the Muslims in Islam. So examples of these civil laws that punish those who harm the weak damage the environment or involve in acts of corruption and these are all they all have civil repercussions in it under a civil system right and so Islam say it's okay to be subjected to this because it fulfills the purpose of what punishment is 
there's a okay and this is to me one of the more important requirement that none of us have and therefore we cannot look at who do even uh, i'm not sure if we have to refer to our neighbors in the north or you know to, to the to the west uh, you know there is a strong position that muslims should consider implementing hudud laws you can only implement hudud laws only if your whole society consists of pious and honorable people and leaders of high moral integrity because they are going to be executing the law and the standard of the whole community must be that is so pious and honorable that they will not commit such act and if such acts are committed then the 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 the, the gravity is much more than in a society where these are kind of rampant so muslims should therefore in my opinion focus on building a just moral society governed by trustworthy leaders rather than raise the grave error of implementing hudud punishments without fulfilling the onerous condition yeah, so if you to personally ask me like in our region i'm just referring to our region because i've no specialty in other parts of the world should they have hudud law i says no <laughs> unless everybody goes to the mosque and start praying and they were fasting mondays and thursdays they were reading the quran and and the leaders are equally as pious as the people then okay maybe the standard has been met but in so far as long as we have not achieved that kind of level that's as far as i would say no because you know in the, the, the another thing that we must realize the reality of the world is that sharia law is not even implemented in many muslim countries as the base law of the land number one most belong to one of the four major uh, madhabs the malki hanafi hanbali shafi'i and each interpret sharia differently for different countries today islamic legal rulings are applied primarily in the area of personal and family law so which means divorce marriages and inheritance and that's exactly what's happening in singapore as well right civil law in most of these muslim majority countries is based upon modern western legal system which they inherited from the period of european colonization and i give you an excellent example even in the most islamic of islamic country you know egypt borrowed from the french civil code turkey adopted the swiss civil law while indonesia the dutch civil law the notable exceptions are two saudi and iran which applies islamic law both in the civil and public sphere as well on the other hand we have pakistan and afghanistan who applies largely tribal law known as jirga law okay so so that's uh that's as far as i, I would go mm. to explain this yeah when come to think of it i yeah. think you know even in singapore right we uh practice deterrence which what, what do you mean said, okay, said, we're, we're not, not we're not going to go we're not going to go there yeah, yeah no, we're not going to go there but i'm, I'm saying different. like Yeah, a different Singapore. Singapore is not Sharia law. I'm just saying, like, yeah, know, yeah. The, the 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 style we do it is uh, we did the so. Yeah. I have no idea what you're saying, <laughs> but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's Kanda and Wizard don't know what you're referring to as well. <laughs> yeah, we have some stereotypes. No, I think we have Singapore. heavy fines and penalties, right? In Singapore, heavy fines and penalties, fine, yeah. right? It's okay. like in the sense we are deterring people from committing littering, you know, and all that. But that doesn't stop people from committing that because if it's just about money, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe you earn more than me, and let's say if you throw a litter on the floor, it's hundred dollars. It's painful for me because I don't earn as much, so. You know, coming out with one hundred, I would okay, maybe not. But for you, ah, uh, one hundred dollars settle this issue, and then done with it, and then it doesn't affect you in so much. So that's one of the pitfalls of this monetary kind of uh, justice. Well, I thought uh, Singapore used canings, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> yeah, uh, spe- specific crimes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so that's deterrence, right? Uh, I mean. Yeah, you know, you know, but. It, 
uh, it's kind of like say we we go we go on the ring and then you know I punch you and you don't want to be punched and then you don't want to get hurt but you still go for the next match and the next match and the next match that's the nature of hum- human humanity you know they don't right. get they should stop after going through hardships you know in this case caning or being punched or whatever but they don't they still they they crave for it you know they want some more and some more and, and more and more true hmm. true yeah very true we're strange we're strange yeah Yep. Okay, um, we are going on to the next part. Okay, but okay. before we go, just want to see some of the comments regarding Sharia sure. law before we go to the next part. Sure. Let me see. Some people are talking about cigarettes. Mm. They're and, all talking about cigarettes. Uh, cigarettes, <laughs> yeah. And it's haram in some places and so yeah. and so forth. So, so let's not talk about halal and haram. Okay, first. Which is yeah. probably a good segue into the next topic. Let's just yeah. talk about cigarette as a thing, right? Uh, I don't know why... I don't know why you smoke, but sometimes people smoke. They don't know why they smoke. They just smoke because they're bored. They have nothing to do, and they just they, they do it, right? And and but you know the impact of the cigarette through many scientific researchers that it is something that is detrimental to your health, and that alone enough should guide the Muslim to something that he should or he should not do, rather than going behind the cloak of halal and haram. You know what I mean? And 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 seriously, sometimes when you talk to someone who smokes, oh, you know, and that's why it becomes macro even after you smoke and. And then you smoke your Marlboro and then you go to Jumaah prayer and then you you recite and then everybody around you can smell the cigarette smell. You know, that that all gives an indication what it should be and how it should be dealt with in Islam without hiding behind the aspect of halal and haram. Because because if if the Muslims depend on that and then the more we have halal and haram, the more they say Islam is so rigid. But if you don't have it, you are not self-policing yourself. And so you have a dichotomy of of. of situation there i definitely can say in a medical background Mm. um it's definitely the nicotine that you know once you try it a lot of people you know they just want to try something like it's in our nature but once you start to try something you know you don't know it's correct it's one of the ingredients that's in a cigarette that causes you to want to go for the next one and then the next one and then you just end up buying packs of them right so 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 sometimes i ask my friends why are you smoking i don't know like i'm just bored so just like Sometimes I didn't even know that I wasn't conscious. I'm not conscious that I took up a stick, but but I just knew that by then I realized I'm already smoking. You know, so <laughs> this is what Imam Ghazali in his book Ayuh Al Walad, uh, advice to a son, says that do not engage in activities that, that does not benefit you, because the more you commit such acts, the more Allah then leaves you behind, right? Begins to ignore you. So we want to, as Muslims, just on basic principles, we want to make sure that we, you know, are careful about such things, small things which can lead to a big thing okay we got yes. another question uh yeah. from uh what is this guy's name shaitan what his name called shaitan insan okay but <laughs> this is huh? name. Shaitan. his name is called shaitan shaitan has come to ask us questions <laughs> yeah shaitan okay four marriages allowed in singapore four marriages allowed in singapore well <laughs> can i make a guess can i make a yeah. guess yeah sure. i think i think regardless whether allowed or not i think only one wife would be recognized legally uh well let's not true? go to the let's not go to the legal part let's just go to a practical part first before we go and launch the legal part number one you can ask most men who are truly truly married to their wives is one enough Fridaus, is one enough why you ask me? i'm going to, i'm going to okay. haunt you if you say no it's Answer enough la. It's more than enough. Too, too much yeah. <laughs> Too much it's, la. It's more than enough. You know, because, you know, if you're really involved and committed and dedicated in the marriage, there's so much things to, to deal with, right? Uh, let's, let's flip this question. Sarah, is one husband more than enough for you? 
Oh, yes. the human practical part. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you even now. I don't you, think you, I can. I don't think I can argue with more than one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's one. And how long have you been married? Ten years. Ten years, and are you, you are still discovering things about him, right? Because human yes. nature is such that we are unraveling, unraveling bit by bit. We don't just totally open our hearts. Yes. So that the discovering part and how to deal with it, you know. Yes, we, you know, generally speaking, in Islam, Allah allows you to marry four wives, but you must be careful because sometimes. When I meet a lot of men who wants to do all this, they are they are suddenly they're very good at Islam. They know the rulings, but they know they you know they want to make get married more than one. They know which verse, they know which hadith, they know what happens, but they don't know how about to pray. They don't know about how to fast. They don't know how to how to do whatever, which is more a primary requirement and demand from them. So let, let's let's launch into it. So this is Surah Tunisa. Uh, generally, yes, we are allowed to marry four, but then Allah says, uh, and if you fear that you will not. Deal justly with the orphan girls, then marry those that please you. Mina nisa, matna wa thulatha wa Right from woman uh, two or three or four. Okay, two or three or four. And usually men stop there. There, Allah says, can what two or three or four? Is there a but? Is there a but? <laughs> do you think, uh, Firdaus, is there a but? No. But. What do you mean by no? There's no such thing as no buts in Islam. There is the but. The verse but. in the same verse, Allah continues to say, but if you fear that you will not be just, mm. then marry just one of those or your right hand possess. Okay. That is more suitable that you may be inclined so that you may not be inclined to injustice. So when Allah says this, you can marry two, three or four, but if you fear that you cannot be just and men can never be just, right? right? You can just attempt to be just. I'm not talking about men as in gender. I'm talking about humanity in general. Cannot be just, then just one. That is more suitable for you so that you dhalika atna ala ta'ulu that you may not incline to things which are unjust. Okay, uh, and this just is defined by the lady, right? Uh, both, because relationship, I mean, marriage is by both, right? What is just mm. in a relationship, right? Sometimes people just say, oh, I'm rich, so I can marry. I can give her equally the money. But marriage is not just about financial or material material things that you can divide among wives. It's intimacy, it's time, it's empathy, love, affection, which are actually the things that we mostly ignore nowadays because we just reduce it to some form of things that we can measure mm. right so so when Allah says you can but and this is better for you so what's the answer to the question just have one nah. one yes please <laughs> if you meet any any guy that say Allah allows yes Allah allows but you are not qualified because can you be just <laughs> if you are just you wouldn't even be thinking about all of this if, you, if you're just you'll be leading your wife to Jannah you'll be leading your kids to, to knowing Allah with great passion you know I, living I a, a life <laughs> I have a quick question yeah um so, so when I when I reverted to Islam, uh, that was actually one of the one of the uh, points in Islam that wasn't very the most um, attractive sure. for me as yeah. a woman. Yeah. And Especially when you want to convert, and then your friends say, exactly. "Are you sure?" <laughs> then you know he will marry second and third wives. Correct. You know? So yeah. my father, the way my father explained it to me, even though he was revert at that time as well, mm -hmm. was you know, given the time that these laws were made um, mm. or directed was because there were already, it was already a cultural thing that you had more than one wife. Yeah. So it was, Islam wouldn't have been very attractive at that time if you said you had to divorce all your wives except one. Yeah. So my father was trying to explain that although yes, it states not more than four, yeah. but 
nowadays we follow of course one wife would be the the, the except you know right. yeah. the guided. It, 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 it's interesting thank you for bringing this point up because can i just say something you know mm -hmm. out of all the adversaries and the critics of the prophet uh in his lifetime and even after his death even up to the moment now have you seen anyone who of that time you know when you want to talk about things you must you must talk uh, consider the time factor because different contexts, different timing, different practices, right? Has anyone of that time ever commented on the prophet marrying more than one? Mm, no. I think last time a lot of people married more than one. <laughs> yeah. Be, uh, you, you know, we... Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm trying to find a nice I way mean, of putting... All the because, prophets themselves, not only just Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, they have more than one, right? No, but I'm telling you, this is more serious. And that's why marrying four, and when this verse came about, and you know, when Allah uh, says, okay, this is this is it, no more marriages for you, you know, uh, it is it was it was very significant because at that time, the no nobles, the rich, the powerful, you know how many wives they have as a matter of general knowledge? 200, 200, 300, something. They were having 100 wives. Yeah. I mean, like, how are you going able to at all sustain? I, I don't know, you know? And as most of us share in the experience, one is more than enough in all sense of the word, right? Yeah. So when Islam came and said, like, this practice is really, uh, you know, uh, making women a propriety uh, ownership. And so Islam came and said, no, this is not how we do it in Islam. Maximum. For, and then there are all these conditions. And so nobody nobody has ever chastised the Prophet because at that time, he being a very famous leader of humanity only had four. They probably, you know, if, if I were to be in that situation, I would probably laugh at him. Only four? You could marry more than that? Look at me, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So that is the context in which all this occurred. And Sarah is right. In the context of us now, this is not something that is important uh, or required. And so marrying four is not something that is encouraged okay i think yes. uh, the comments are very uh hot but okay we need to move on to the next part before you know okay we sure overshoot the time next is oh. about halal and haram why okay. do we halal and haram in islam why do we have halal and haram in islam okay interesting so when we talk about halal and haram usually we tend to limit it to just food right is this food halal is it haram or is there an exception can i eat kosher for example that sort of thing but the concept of halal and haram is not only limited to food it also relates to our behavior in our speech our thoughts our various actions one must understand that this journey of life contains both beautiful attractions and harmful dangers to avoid so it's a balance between these two right so we always have to make a choice so halal is derived from the Arabic word permissibility in the sense of what is permitted in the Sharia. So for Muslims, the basis of every action must be worship, which is worshipping Allah. So eating activity is also a means of worship with rules and procedures according to the Sharia. Okay, so the Quran says eating is not just enough for it to be halal, but it must also be tayyib. So Allah says, Ya Yuhannas, Kulu mimma fil ard halalan tayyiban. He says in Surah Al-Baqarah, O mankind, eat from whatever that is on earth, halalan, which is halal, and tayyiba, which is good. So the word tayyib itself tying up to the word halal means, you know, uh, we, we must eat something that's permissible by Allah, which is good, pure, and harmless. So with no doubt in it, whatever we consume as a result of that becomes something that's good. So why is halal and haram important? Why is it? existing in Islam even, right? So by, so, so for these reasons, and to summarize sort of the many, uh, you know, contents to this, number one, I think clearly halal and haram is there to test us. It's not to have a free run of whatever we want, our desires want. 
The question is, what do we give up for Allah? Of which it will replace with something better in the hereafter, in Jannah for us, inshallah. So this requires forward thinking and forward planning on the part of the Muslim whenever he wants to consume something, whenever he wants to say something, he must think about it, right? Number two, I think it is to differentiate us between a truly believe, a true believer and someone who just claims to believe in Allah, right? And this apparently, this was something that was manifest apparently uh, especially during the time of the period of the Prophet where Muslims are new. Right? And they're just doing it because they wanted to some political leverage in the community. Number three, halal and haram is established to provide wholesome and good nourishment for our physical bodies in preparation for a pure spiritual soul in order for us to be able to worship Allah. So that we are always uh, ready, energetic, and it's clean inside. So it's a clean heart and clean speech, clean dua, clean intention, and so on and so forth. Number four, to curtail any unproductive actions that we may perform. Example, gossiping, materialistic tendencies, shopping, 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 food, 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 show, show, show on Instagram, that sort of thing, you know, that we always do. The only thing we do, uh, and then travel like, I'm here, wish you were here, you know, or things like that. So to, to change that from that kind of unproductive action to something more beneficial that you can profit in the hereafter. And finally, I think as a summary, uh, Halal and Haram is there to instill a sense of accountability by the slave to the master. And I think that's essentially the summary of uh, all of the things that we spoke about. And that's why Halal and Haram is important because at every time we must make a choice, every time we must consider the hereafter and that always puts us in perspective through those choices that we have to make. Mm. Yeah. Okay, good. Next we shall ask about jihad. Lama. Okay. This is the tough one. <laughs> yeah, the one that you know the media says holy war or something. Yeah. Yeah, so, they often compare it to like crusades, right? Yeah, so so we're gonna do a bit of comparison with the, the concept in uh, for the crusades. Now often many people conflate the terms jihad and terrorism. And this is part in part because many writers use the, the word jihadist. In describing violent Muslim radicals, many of them have used this concept of jihad to justify actually their violence. So what is jihad actually? Literally, it means, you know, it's interesting because the meaning is actually opposite of all of that. Okay, it means to strive on doing one's utmost. The word jihad is derived from the verb jihada, which means you exert yourself. And in what sense? That means jihad is someone who is diligent, industrious or laborious in the pursuit of praiseworthy objective. In juridical religious sense, it signifies the exertion of one's power into the utmost of one's capacity in the cause of Allah. So other related verbs include ishtihad, meaning the process of engaging uh, in a diligent, industrious and laborious endeavor. Uh, like for example, finding out the meaning of certain certain hadith, a certain Quranic verse that we mentioned earlier on. A mujtahid engages in the intellectual aspect of ishtihad. A mujahid is one who actively struggles. A uh, mujtahid is commonly used for physical and intellectual endeavors and necess not necessarily associated to war making. So, so jihad in Islam is not an act of violence directed indiscriminately against the non-Muslims, first and foremost. It is the name given to an all-round struggle which a Muslim should launch in the betterment of himself before God. And this turns out to be a very personal thing, right? So to clarify this further, there is a, a division of it. Within Islam, there are two basic theological understanding. The first one we call the greater jihad. This is the internal struggle against the lower self, the nafs, the struggle to purify one's heart, to do good, to avoid evil and make oneself a better person. The second one is the lesser jihad, which is an outward
word struggle. It's, it constitutes a moral principle to struggle against any obstacle that stands in the way of good. So I'm going to give you an example that will blow your mind and Sarah or Rishi will appreciate this as, you know, as, as Muslimah. Childbearing, delivering and raising a child is an example of a lesser jihad because uh, of the many obstacles that you face, the many pain that you have to go through and the struggles that you to deliver the child and raise the child successfully to be a child of taqwa, right? So these are the kind of concepts that we relate to, uh, to jihad, right? Not the kind that you've seen. So the other aspect, the physical jihad or the qital fi sabilillah in the way, fighting in the way of Allah is only one aspect of the jihad. Even this qital in Islam is not an act of mad brutality, just go around killing like the Mongols were doing, right? It has its material and moral function of self-preservation and the preservation of the moral order of the world. So jihad in a physical manner involves fighting against oppressors and aggressors who commit injustice. It is not, okay, so now I come to Iskandar's concept. It is not what we call the holy war. You know, at one point, it's always described as holy war. No war is really holy, right? So it's not a holy war. In the way a crusade would have been considered a holy war. In Islamic tradition, the form of jihad that involves fighting requires specific ethical conditions, which is whether it is permissible to fight as well as clear rules of engagement, such as requirement to protect non-combatants, female, children should not be involved, uh, should not be hurt at all. So scholars have compared jihad that involves fighting to another concept which is called just war, a Christian concept, the purpose of which is to ensure that the war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria, all of which must be met in order for a war to be considered just. The criteria are split into two groups. One is the right to go to war just at bellum and right to conduct in war just at bellow. It postulates that the belief in war that while it is terrible, it is not always the worst of options. Okay, so this is sort of like uh, alluding to Iskandar's question early on. Mm. So when did this spiritual dimension of jihad establish? Okay, it is. It was clarified as early as the very first battle in Islam, which is the Battle of Badr, in which casualties were many on both sides of camp. So when the companions lamented about uh, the gravity of the sacrifice they had undergone and those who, the number of those who died, the Prophet referred to that as the smaller jihad. In contrast to the struggle against yourself for goodness or piety, or what we call the jihadun nafs, the struggle against desires, categorized as the greater jihad, the prophecy that was waiting for us back home when you go back to Medina, uh, to out to Makkah. Right? This hadith is found in many sources, but it is considered weak due to its questionable chain of transmission to the Prophet. However, it is frequently referred to in scholarly Arabic works, including Imi Tamiyas Majmu Afatawa or Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani is Al-Kaf Ashaf. Right, so it's the concept that's up, that's applied in many scholarship, although the, the the hadith is considered weak by by most. Okay, so how do we apply the concept of jihad in our daily lives? And this is the question that I think the part which should be the most important for all of us, because we know all of that is not what we are supposed to do. So I want to stress that you know there is a similar similarity to the demands of ihsan. So ihsan is to serve Allah as though you see Him, but if not, He surely sees you. That's the definition. So when you understand this concept, you will do whatever you are tasked to do in the best and the most most perfect way as possible because you are conscious that Allah is always seeing what you do. You're conscious of His presence and your His sight over you. So jihad is that is to struggle to be the best of yourself at every moment, improving and improving and improving because you're also conscious of Allah's grace upon you. So if today you memorize chapter 10 of the Quran tomorrow, you know, when you've acquired that, you must continue to chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter, chapter 14 and 15 and so on and so forth. You cannot just stop at uh, I've memorized Kul Allahu Ahad. I'm good. I can pray now. First rakan second third fourth you know whatever so the same even you always say Firdaus please memorize some other verses I'm bored with this you know so uh, this is this is just the improvement that you you made because you're conscious that you need to be perfect
right? Because Allah is always watching you. So if you're conscious of that, and I, I think I, I spoke to Risa like maybe two or three episodes ago, you perform your task as a student. This is what you do as an employee, as an employer. This is the best that you should do. As a friend, this is the how you should conduct yourself as a colleague, as a friend member. All of it to the best of your ability. Whether you get a pat on the back or otherwise recognition, it doesn't matter because the angels have them recorded for you, left or right, and Allah always sees you. And that is enough for us, right? And that is the basis of jihad. Someone who is diligent, industrious, or who is laborious in the pursuit of praiseworthy objective and goal. So that sort of answered the question. So uh, maybe recalibrate. Why did Allah make us struggle in this life? Hmm. So why do you think that this test? I think we kind of covered this topic a little bit um, mm. in the last two episodes. So I want to start by talking the story about Nabi Ayub alayhi uh, Ayub is known as Job in the Bible. Nabi Ayub, mashallah, the story is so inspiring. He he was a man who had everything. He had wealth, he had power, he had a large family. And But despite all of that, unlike most of us who when we reach that kind of standard, he was very steep in ibadah, always being grateful to Allah, always worshipping Him. And so Allah was so proud of him that Allah told the shaitan that there is one man that is difficult to shake his belief on earth and there's Ayub. And so shaitan said, then let me test him. You know, so you never run away from tests. And so shaitan tested him. First of all, his wealth was gone. Number two, his house was destroyed and then killing all his children. I mean, if it was you, you everything is gone for you. You go crazy, right? But no, he still remained. And then if it's not enough, uh, tested him with another kind of difficulty. Uh, he had a sickness, a skin disease, so bad that everyone left him, um, that everyone forced him to stay at one corner of the of the area where nobody is there. Uh, they, they scared he would get infected. It was said in some narration that his skin comes out worms and maggots and all that, you know. So, so he, the only person who stayed with him was his wife, his beloved wife. So, after going through so many years, maybe like about eight years or so of this, the wife suddenly felt so pitiful and couldn't take it anymore and cried and, and, and told him, you are a prophet of God. If you ask Allah anything, Allah would take it away from you, would answer your prayer. Why didn't you ask Allah to get us out of this difficulty? And that is something that is logical and common for most of us to ask God whenever we are in, in, in bad shape. And so, but then... Nabi Ayub being a prophet, he was different from anybody. He, he, he scolded his wife and he said, Darling, we have 80 years of goodness, of wealth, of, of power, of prestige, and every, of, of great, great stuff. And Allah just inflicted for us hardship for a few years as a test. Shouldn't you be grateful? How can you put them side by side? It's not fair. Of 80 years of goodness and then just a few years of, of hardship. You know, we should suffer in equal numbers. You know, that's what he meant. And so if I get better, I'm going to cane you for saying this. Or, you know, some said that he was going to divorce his wife if, you know, you know, if he, she continues saying this. And so um, he he sat down one day and then he decided to make dua to Allah, not to, to complain. He said, Ya Allah, thank you for all the good things that you've done. Could you please just alleviate some of these hardships that we are going through because I'm all alone. I'm so sick. I've lost everything, you know, uh, not complaining to God, but just to lament. Right. And so uh, he made dua for whatever that is good for him. And so then the angel said, okay, dig your feet uh, on the ground and then gush out water. And then he showered with it and he was cured from that skin disease. And in fact, some narration even say that Allah uh, created for him dragonflies made of gold to shower him. Subhanallah. <laughs> you know, we, we only shower by ourselves. This one is gold flies made of gold. So anyway, he recovered. And then once he recovered, you know, um, he became grateful. So Allah then in Surah Saad, verse 
chapter chapter 8 verse 44 Allah says inna wajadnahu sabiran ni'mal abdu innahu awwab Allah says verily we found him to be patient he was a most excellent of servants indeed he was frequent in repentance so despite all of that Allah uh, uh, praise him for his attitude to, towards that so to ask the question why are we subjected by test upon test upon test you must accept that this is facts of life because in suratul muluk chapter 2 versus verse 2 Allah says allazi khalaqal mauta wal hayata liyabluwakum ayyukum ahsanu amala wa huwal azizul ghafur he who created death and life that he may test which of you is best indeed uh, his uh, uh, you know so we see in the example of nabi ayub alayhi salam that you know despite that he was tested in goodness and then Allah took everything away from him and then despite that he was still best indeed so we should be ashamed when we you know stand beside nabi ayub on the day of judgment because we would have failed many many moons ago right uh, so definitely i said uh, two weeks ago that allah will test you wala nabluwan nakum bisha' min al-khawf wal-ju' wa naqsi min al-amwali wal-anfs wa al-thamarat wa bashri sabirin we shall test you we definitely will test you with something of fear which Nabi Ayub went through hunger. You know, the wife had to cut her hair to sell her hair in order to buy food because nobody wanted to have dealings with them. That was how poor they became, right? So he went through that stage. You and I have never had to cut our hair. I mean, I don't have any hair to cut, but anyway, if you had, you know, it's forbidden, by the way, Nabi Ayub scolded the, the wife, but she, that's what she did in order to get money to buy food. A loss of wealth, they suffered it. A loss of lives, they lost all the kids, you know. The loss of uh, uh, thamarat, the fruits of your labor, all the efforts that you've put in are gone in a split second. But wabashir sabirin, give good news to those who are patient, right? Because Allah says, "Alladhi ida asabatun masiba qalu inna lillah wa inna ilahi rajiun." Whoever, whenever faced with such calamity, says, "Inna lillah wa inna ilahi rajiun." We come from Allah, and indeed, we will return to Allah. So I used to tell my students in my class, like, let's say your you you lose your iPhone 12 Pro Max, the latest one. Fredaus, what do you say first? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Yes. If you lose it, if let's say tomorrow you win a lucky draw and you got one million dollars, what do you say? Alhamdulillah. Yeah. So all is good, right? <laughs> it, but the most thing is usually when we fall down, when we be sought with calamity, we will start to use expletive words and all that. But the first thing we must say is Alhamdulillah because it comes from Allah and it's going back to Allah. And then you say Inna Lillah wa Inna Ilahi Rajiun. Okay. And then he says for whoever does that, ulaika alaihim salawatu min Rabbihim wa rahma. These are the ones whom, because if we felt calamity, they attribute it to Allah. Blessings will come from Allah and mercy from Allah, and it's those who are the rightfully guided ones. Okay, but the key is, and I mentioned this two weeks ago. The key is, and I think this lies. I told you this is one of my favorite verse. Ya ayuhaladina amanu, oh you who believe. Ya ayuhaladina amanu, biru wasabiru. Be patient and be you know be be constant. Be patient in that being patience. Warabitu and to be constant, steadfast. Watakullah and have have fear of Allah. Laanakum tufilhun so that you may succeed. Or you believe be steadfast in patience, in constancy, and fear of Allah that you may succeed. So we must always remain this, and that is the example that Nabi Ayub has exemplified throughout years of of hardship that he's went through after Allah has taken away all the all the the wealth and the influence and the money and the, you know uh, whatever that he he used to have. But always also I also always want you to remember that Allah's compassion and mercy covers all. He does not test you beyond your ability. La yukalifullahu nafsan illa wusaha. He on no soul does he place a burden greater than it can bear. So always remember about that 
aspect of hope. Always remember that you're meant to pass. Uh, but remember, maybe, why are you in, in this situation? In Surah Ashura, chapter 42, verse 30, he says, And whatever strikes you of disaster, it is for what your hands have earned, but he pardons much. So, you always, therefore, have to reflect and muhasaba that whatever happens to us is because of what we have done consciously or unconsciously. But always remember that he pardons much and always return back to him. And so this alludes to the earlier concept the way we say, not that Allah loves you to make sins, but Allah simply loves you to always come back to him. Tawbah is coming back. So why do we suffer? We can say a few things and then sum summarize some of the points. Number one, due to our callousness and heedlessness, despite guidance. Number two, due to our sins that we committed, whether we are conscious of it or not. Number three, lack of regular consciousness that Allah is not always in your frame of mind that you, you know that you always distract yourself uh, and so you need to perform repentance. The fourth part that the hurt we inflicted on others with consciousness or not even through our words of uh, harshness, maybe through our actions that we may hurt someone else and that's why we suffer. Number five, forgetting Allah after especially has helped you. So when we are down, we always... As Allah help me, help me, help me. When Allah helps and we get out of it, totally we forget. We forgot that Allah was there when we were down. And that's normal human nature. Number six, our negative desires for wanting more than we need. And this, our nafs. Uh, we have enough food on the table, but say, never mind, never mind. I just have some bubble tea, just have some uh, KFC, have some uh, ANW, whatever, just for you know extra, you know, while watching Netflix, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and this is also my weakness. Sometimes I'm watching Netflix, I scream, I scream, I scream, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and especially now, uh, Ben and Jerry's, I think, have uh, uh, had new flavor. The flavor is Netflix and chill. So it's just like, wow, what a perfect combination. <laughs> watching Netflix and then eating Netflix ice cream. You know, uh, and, and finally, due to injustices that we have committed, for example, due to our wealth or ad attitude, the way we do not give ourselves a good balanced life and so on and so forth. Right? But what is our attitude towards all of this? Do not give up because in a hadith, Sahih Muslim, the Prophet Sallallahu said, how wonderful is the case of a believer that is good in everything that he does and this is not the case with anyone except a believer. Because number one, if good comes to him, he's grateful and that's good for him and Allah will increase his, you know, the gratitude. Number two, if adversity befalls him, he endures it patiently and Allah will reward him for those patience. So that should be our attitude. Okay, and I want to end by talking about another story of a prophet which is Prophet uh, Yunus or in the biblical version is Prophet Jonah. Uh, to summarize the long story short, um, there were three issues that he was facing. Number one, when he was faced with challenges, he abandoned his people. He went on board a ship and then on the ship, the second problem he did was uh, when there was a storm, they were picking up straws and he partake in that gambling of straws. And number three, when three times it was him, they said, okay, you have to jump on board. And the third issue that he faced was by jumping on board committing suicide. So three aspects that you were uh, not maybe uh, uh, recommended for a prophet to do. So that's why in the story of Nabi Yunus alayhi salam, he's always described that he was engulfed by three levels of darkness. The three levels of darkness are number one, uh, it was in the night that he fell into the ocean. Number two, he was under the ocean, like super dark. Like to have a whale in the ocean, it cannot be East Coast Park. It must be like some big ocean, right? So in the middle of the night, under the dark ocean, deep dark ocean. And number three, the darkness is inside the belly of a whale. So let's say you are in the belly of a whale. <laughs> I mean like, wow. 
also big, what kind of challenge would that have been? What would you have done? You're just uh, like, uh, well, the acidity of the whale would probably eat me up and I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm probably just going to die. I'm just going to give up, right? That's probably assessing the risk management. You say that, okay, probably I'm going to go. But what did Nabi, Nabi Yunus did? Even in the under the three levels of darkness, he made doa, la ilaha ila anta subhanaka inni kuntu minazalimin. And he repeated this as a form of zikr repeatedly, la ilaha ila anta subhanaka inni kuntu minazalimin. There is no God except you, ya Allah, exalted you, are you? Indeed, I've been one of the wrongdoers. Admitting and therefore seeking forgiveness. And then in Surah Al-Anbiya, chapter 21, verse 87, right? repeating this as a zikr and he repeat, repeat, repeat. And then suddenly, the whale was inspired to vomit him out and vomit him out and then he, you know, put him on the shore. And by the time he woke up, a, a small plant was growing over his face to give him shade. And when, you, you know, so what I'm saying is the miraculous acceptance of Allah of a repentance save him in ways not only save him but give him gives him comfort i mean imagine a whale have consumed you and allah make the whale spew you out by the shore and there's no other animals that attack you at the shore and then grew a plant to cover and shade you mashallah the beauty of repentance uh, in the story of nabi yunus salam, is such an inspiring story that when allah gives you back and forgives you he gives you more than what you need Right, so that's why you know this is another aspect in which I want I'm answering Yusuf's question, part B, part C, is that the beauty of repentance is such that not Allah wants you to sin, but Allah wants to give you more and more of Himself to you, mashallah. So we must always get ourselves ready to accept the blessings that Allah wants to give to us. Yes, so that's it. So um, just to clarify in summary of the struggles mm. and jihad uh, why did Allah make us struggle in this life so that we can always come back to him and it's also a test in this life and yeah. uh, how should we face our struggles always face with Alhamdulillah <laughs> And yeah, because uh, <laughs> the qadar and qadar, the good and the bad comes from Allah Ta'ala, mm. right? So, so everything the, no Muslim is actually stressed, la, technically. If you, are, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be stressed, right? Like, yeah, you, you have when you have Allah, you have everything. You yeah. have problem, you just go down and prostrate, Allah lifts you up to the highest level, mm. right? This is very simple. Uh, so don't get too overloaded with the world's problems because these are only temporary. So when you're faced with all these problems, go back to Allah and He will lift it up for you. But you must go to Him sincerely. You must go to Him. Don't ignore Him. Mm. Right? He set up a system in which you always go to Him. So take advantage of that, inshallah. Mm. And the question of does that mean we have to perform jihad? That I mean, we already have our internal struggles a lot to handle. Yeah. So, so as, as much as you're handling your internal struggles, that is jihad. I mean, I could have been angry, but I withhold that. That is jihad. Because you're performing ihsan. You're, you're performing the best that you can. You're trying to beautify the beautiful the character that you have, you possess. So that is ihsan and that is jihad. You are constantly, as long as you are taking control of your life, performing this jihad. And this is the greater jihad, your nafs. Because your nafs can give you wild abandonment. <laughs> right? You, if as long as you keep yourself firmly footed to the ground, then you are you are doing all right, inshallah. Mashallah. All right, last one is on apostasy. And Another we, big topic. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just the last one before we go, but uh, mm. it's just like, you know, we hear a lot about how people, when they leave the faith, they are mm. going to be beheaded or stoned to death. I think something like that in the media. Yeah. Is that. So, uh, <laughs> is it true? Is it true? Yeah. So, just want to be cheeky. Is it something that you're afraid of? <laughs> yeah, afraid of. Uh, or I mean, maybe you're planning something in the future. <laughs> <Is that true? laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so apostasy in Islam in Arabic is called Rida or Irtidat or, or the person is called the Murtad is an apostate from Islam commonly defined as the abandonment of the faith by a Muslim in word or through deeds. Right? It has been well established that both the religion of Islam and Islamic civilization have shown a level of religious tolerance. Islam recognizes the freedom of religion as a right for every individual founded on the Quranic principle in Surah Al-Baqarah La ikrah din that there be no compassion in matters of religion. I think if uh, when Firdaus, you remember when you uh, went through your conversion process and I was yeah. doing it, behind me, there's a frame that, that, that cited this verse. That is the verse, La ikrah din no compassion in religion. So since there is no compassion in Islam, literally, whoever wishes to embrace the faith or leave the faith is free to do so. So Allah says in Surah Al-Kafi, chapter 18, verse 39, He says, وَكُلِّ uh, مِن رَبِّكُمْ The truth is from your Lord. فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ And whoever uh, wills will let him believe. وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ Whoever wills, let him disbelieve. So, whoever wants to believe, believe. Whoever don't want, don't want to believe, let them don't believe, right? In this in this verse. So, it's very clear. Though we refer to Rida as apostasy, but you must understand one thing. Why those rulings about killing and all that occurred? Because that was in so in another different time, in a different, different context. We refer to Rida as apostasy for the sake of convenience. But the heart of the matter lies in a simple act of translation. <coughs> So in the time of the Prophet and the early Muslims, the Arabic noun Rida, and this especially was the was the characteristic of the period of the Caliphate of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, the first Caliph. So once they see that the Prophet has passed away, they all apostated and refused to pay zakat. Right? And the verb for engaging in it were understood not as merely meaning a personal choice of changing one religion or getting out of Islam. So apostasy means also the public act of political accession, secession from the Muslim community. So meaning, they not only refer to those who leave Islam by faith, as we understand them now, but also became active opponents, more renegades than mere dissenters. So along the same lines, the problem with Rida in Islam was not that a person was exercising the freedom of conscience and choosing to no longer follow the religion. The problem was when such a decision became a public act with political implication. So especially in that time. So the had- there's a hadith in Sahih Bukhari that said that whoever changes their religion, kill them. And this is the kind of hadith that we always quote in order for us to execute this kind of thing. So it must, however, be understood in, in, in this context that I was referring to. That there were, apart from leaving the faith, aggressive elements of public acts of dissension together with political implications plus the conspiracy with the enemy to destroy the Muslims. And that is why those kind of punishments came into being. There are also other hadith narrated even by Bukhari and Muslim where the Prophet spoke of both the act of leaving the religion coupled with political crime of treason. So those were the those were the ridor, ridor or the apostasy that we, that was referred to and therefore that kind of punishment. The kind of apostasy that we're talking about now is just simply leaving the religion so the conditions does not apply. There must be a presence of the element of a aggression and assault against Muslims through their acts of apostasy. Hence the harsh punishment that you are familiar with because of that element. Therefore, you must not merely read hadith literally without understanding the context of the time. It it leads to this sort of uh, understanding or, or engagement. So then the next question we ask is, what did the Prophet do? Now, you must know that he never forced anyone, even his family members, to became to become Muslims. They became Muslims through his message of social justice, equality of humankind before God, and other enduring values of humanity like compassion and kindness. So we see, for example, in the story of Fathul Makkah. Fathul Makkah in his Arabic translation means the opening of Makkah. But um, writing sometimes referred to as the reconquest of Makkah. There was no reconquest because when the Muslims walked all the way from Medina to Makkah, they left all their weapons outside of Mecca. They entered Mecca without any weapons, just, just like you and I walking through the mall. 
so there was no fighting but when they saw that the prophet uh, you know the prophet actually went to the head of the Quraysh Abu Sufyan house and he said uh, do not uh, endanger any of these non-muslims because if you hurt them you hurt me and today I'm going to do what Nabi Yusuf did when he forgave his brothers they are all forgiven for all the things that have done for us that, until we have to hijrah to Medina so that was the kin break that the prophet had and had the prophet not acted that way there would not be a flourish of Quraysh of the enemies of Islam who then uh, saw the beauty of it uh, and embrace Islam. That's why we say إِذَا جَاءَنَا سُوَ اللَّهِ وَالْفَاتِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدَخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجَ فَسَبِّ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرُ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَابَ Surah An-Nasr. Right? That refers to that event. So the Prophet, after he took over Makkah, even allowed non-Muslims to remain in their faith and forbade the Muslims to destroy their places of worship and accepted everyone as, as, as one community. So, so as for those who decided to leave Islam, the Prophet ﷺ did not implement any form of punishment. So this is something that is important to know. Mm. In a hadith narrated by Bukhari, a Bedouin had pledged allegiance to the Prophet, became a Muslim, but he withdrew his pledge a day after he has made it. Right? So he get out of Islam the next day. The Prophet left him alone and did not order any form of punishment on that individual. There are also many other instances of those who left Islam but were not punished by the Prophet So the emphasis of the behavior of the Prophet that we must emulate and we must apply would be to uphold that freedom of religion in the Quran as a fundamental principle in Islam. No forcing into the faith. The treatment of apostasy, apostasy as a crime punishable by death came only later during the period where Islam gained political ascendancy. As such, the act of apostasy was not treated as a purely theological issue, but as an act of treason because the apostate is seen as having abandoned his or her loyalty and allegiance to the Muslim community and created aggressive elements of public acts of dissension together with political implications plus they conspired with the enemy to destroy Muslims. So the punishment by death stated in the hadith quoted should therefore be understood within this specific context. The sin of leaving the religion and it's important the sin of leaving the faith is purely between the individual and Allah and hence and hence Worldly punishments do not apply in a situation where treason or political harm does not exist. Okay, so what do we do? I think the important question is what do we do if we know that a friend has apostated? Firstly, for me, an important would be to still uh, remain friends with that friend. I know some people will have other opinions, but my point is, in the long term, I want you to not stop understanding why they make that decision because once you understand, you may be able to assist to unpack their confusion and with the will of Allah, enable them to repent and return back to the faith. At worst, if you're still a friend, when doubts can come later in their life and they wanted to find solace in the divine, they will always have you to get them back to the faith as someone who has always held their hands and not abandoned them. Imagine if you did leave them, they will never have a chance or a friend to bring them back. So that's my take on apostasy. MashaAllah. I think uh, we are right to say that, you know, um, at, the, at the end, you know, every day, Islam interweave with, you know, their uh, politics as well, right? In in those times. So yeah. I guess people, when they leave the religion, they are technically also conspiring at that point. At Not time. necessarily. I'm Not all. At that, at that time, when they leave, they were sabotaging the Muslims in a political sense. And so that is an act yeah. of treason. So that's why the act of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the hudud comes to place. But if that element is absent, I just want, I, I just don't believe in this faith anymore, then it's not allowed for you to commit that kind of punishment upon them. Yeah. Because the Prophet himself didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, if you were to take a country's classified document and give to and yeah. a spy and give to someone, you also will be hanged. So what's the punishment Singapore. for that one? Yeah, you know? Yeah, hang so. in Singapore. <laughs> 
<laughs> whatever you know for different countries yeah. different application but yeah. it's serious yeah so yeah. those elements in the past historically if you look at the hadith if you look at the context of which it's been applied are those with that element but those absence of those elements the prophet let him go because you cannot force someone to believe because that's why faith is a matter of the heart you cannot force someone so i'll give you some example if you love someone i cannot force you to love someone else mm-hmm. right? let's say your parents say you know no i arrange for your marriage with this person you know you marry but if you don't love you already have someone whom you love you cannot even how much you force it would be detrimental over in the long long run of that marriage right so you cannot force things like faith or love right mm. and islam you know uh, you know from these conversations i have few beautiful things perspective number one i i love the way that i was inspired by rusi when to talk about islam as a as a movie you know a film that's that's i think that's amazing and i get so much feedbacks from my students who say that you know that was an a totally beautiful way of looking at things and another thing that i want to i'm inspired by after talking about all of this is to say that and i i, I beg you to consider it would be number one to think of islam as a love story it's not something that can be forced you know and so um uh it is and is a faith in the heart by the heart and allah looks it at your heart and so it's a it's a movement of your heart so so when you see you know when i want to bring back to a very simple history you know the first time when the prophet sallallahu received revelation with uh jibril alayhi salam in uh, jabal nur or hiraq cave Right, so you history will tell you. You read it. You say, uh, Jibril came and then tell to the prophet, uh, Ikra, 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 and then the prophet then repeated Ikra. Right, so that is to <laughs> really summarize it to its bare minimum. But the the detail of it is beautiful because you will notice that uh, in the narration, Jibril did not just you know not not let me saying like. Ikra, Ikra, Ikra. You know, you be like, what is this? What the hell is this man talking about, right? <laughs> you know, but Jibril actually hugged the prophet, and every time he says Ikra, before he says that, he hugged him harder and harder and harder. The third time when the, he attempted to say this to the prophet, the prophet recorded to say that he hugged me so much, so hard that I felt that all the ox air in my in my body has left me, like totally is very hard. And then he says Ikra, and then the prophet understood what he was saying, not to read but to repeat that that verse. Right, so from there, a thinking person would know if you know the read the details would be that ikra is not just a passing of of mouth to mouth like this. It is Jibril giving the revelation from his heart to the heart of the prophet. You know when you hug someone, it's face to face. It cannot be from the back, right? It's face to face. So the heart is touching the heart, and so that's why he understood that it is not to read but is to repeat ikra bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So that becomes the essence of the message of Islam. That is a message of of love, and it is to be implanted. Develop in the heart. That's why we talk about jihad, purification of the heart. You know, when 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 Allah sees you, He judges you by the heart. People only can see you by by your physical action, and no one can see your heart because it's something that is between you only and Allah. So that is the beauty of it. So mm-hmm. imagine Islam is a series of love stories that you have, Subhanallah. And then Rusi, being a stud- film student, would just make f- movies out of that. Wow, and capture it, and maybe hopefully inspire generations to come. I think Philippa will fit some of the roles of a fairy tale princess. She has. Quite a <laughs> <few>. <laughs> Inshallah, she will join us in the next next session. Inshallah. All right, I think thank you so much, Ustad, for the knowledge sharing and taking a uh, a lot of time with you know sharing this. We have crossed you know one hour forty minutes. This is one of the Inshallah. Mashallah. Inshallah, I think Inshallah, everyone have benefited uh, from the sharing, and uh, hopefully, we hope we hope that you know tonight you go home with uh, a lot of things you have uh, acquired today so um, maybe in conclusion 
Ustad, would yes. you like to share us a, a summary, like in conclusion or something? In conclusion, yeah. like I said, yeah. you know, number one, Islam is a series of love stories. Develop a quality love story for yourself with Allah, uh, and you find that actually is is a beautiful journey, right? And um, and 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 once that's that's sorted out, uh, always remember that everything that we talk about today is really a way to improve your beauty and your relationship with Allah, so that when you meet Him, you are in your best form and. And, you know, and inshallah, because of that, you know, Jannah is for you, inshallah. And so, so don't sweat about the small stuff. Learn, understand uh, deeply about what you are into, so that you can you can look forward into the big picture. And you know, you will fail in small small things. Granted, because you're a human being, we have all our weaknesses. But just make sure that your target is always there, and you're always moving in that direction. If you're married with your spouse, if your children with your kids, if not with you know with your good friends or whoever that you love because you know one of the most beautiful thing is to make dua of your friends without even telling them you're making dua for them right so as a as a, as a wife you make dua for your husband and your children as a husband you make dua for your wife and your children as a friend if you're not married uh, if you have a girlfriend or whatever make dua for your girlfriend or boyfriend and if not just for any of your friends that you love because when you want to enter Jannah you want to enter Jannah with the ones that you love and see them happy with you being rewarded and being blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inshallah mashallah thank you so much uh and for those viewers who post your questions, I'm sorry we don't have the time to finish all the questions. Uh, but inshallah, there, are there a lot of questions? <laughs> uh, not really. More of the talking. But, but inshallah, maybe we can uh, roll over <laughs> to the next session. Or, or, or yeah. you know, you just leave it at the YouTube comment section. Maybe we have time. We can reply some of them. Yeah, inshallah. Yeah. Harold would yeah. do I think that. they were just talking about uh, Arisala. You know the film. Arisala. So, okay. Yeah, really so just one beautiful comment we saw is Alhamdulillah love the streams and learn a lot too in depth even as a born Muslim thank you Ustad Saifur Rahman and the panelists for tonight thank you for joining us and hopefully you have benefited from it and if you do the important thing is to uh, apply it in your lives and if you can share with your friends so that they can benefit too like I said you want to enter Jannah with all the people that you love inshallah thank you so much and to make the Prophet Sallallahu proud of us inshallah Inshallah. Okay, we'll start on the end with Tasbih Kafarah and Surah Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika Thank you everyone and good night. See you in the next episode. Inshallah. Bye. Inshallah. Bye.